So are you any the wiser yet? And we've been doing a lot really. There's the practice of insight meditation, which for some of you is completely new. Just finding your feet with that. We've had the inquiry practice this afternoon, which again for many of you is new, and finding your feet with that. You know, going from the silence and being on your own, suddenly you're in a two, and that's where the light's shining. And then going back into the silence. We have the walking meditation, the sitting, this theme of non-attachment and intimacy. And I just want you to sense for yourself those two words. I'll start with one. And just see what your response is, your immediate kind of either mental or emotional or physical responses are. Non-attachment. Just take a breath with that one. Okay, and then... Just see if it's the same or different with this other word, intimacy. And they're very powerful words, I think, for us as human beings. This intimacy that we can find ourselves either craving our lifetime for or avoiding And I've no idea what was happening when I went outside just before, but I don't know if you've seen these two pigeons flapping around in this tree here by the um, pond today. Quite a lot of flapping. So I went to investigate. And there was two pigeons on a branch. And they were doing this dance. I have no idea what was going on, but of course, you know, the human story gets kind of put on top of that very easily. And one pigeon kind of moved, jumped closer across the branch to the other one, and the other one moved away. And then the first pigeon moved away, and then the one who'd moved away first starts moving back. right? And then that one flies off to that tree, and then that one flies off to that tree, but on different branches. And then that one goes over to that tree. No idea what was going on, but they were obviously exploring something together in the realm of being close and being apart. And in practice, we're practicing on our own. That need, that instinctual need for intimacy can get very confused for us and can lead us ending in an endless, sort of being in an endless search for something that we don't necessarily always find. And in practice, we're asked to come back to ourselves, to find out from our own experience, through exploring and investigating, what is this that the Buddha speaks about of non-attachment? And what is this? So the Buddha speaking about non-attachment, probably many of you know the, the formulation of the teachings, that in realizing that 
suffering was born of clinging, born of craving. His teaching points us to a non-attachment. And the word Nibbana that is used for realization has to do with cooling out, has to do with cooling cooling of that fire of craving it kind of cools out and how does that fit then with what Zen Master Dogen very respected marvelous Zen teacher talks about he says to study the Buddha way is to study the self to study the self is to forget the self Forget the self is to become intimate with all things. To be intimate with all things is to let body and mind drop away. So where have you got your preference at the moment? Even if in the end they're pointing to the same thing. Our ordinary mind doesn't necessarily get that. But we'll know it from our experience when we're truly, truly here with something without our hands on it, as it were, without kind of getting busy with it, pushing it or pulling it. There's a way that we're completely intimate. And we recognize that. There's something in that that is satisfying. So in practice we're on our own. We're taking it out of that realm of where our culture gets and and many of us get very uh, lost in the realm of the two, the pair, the the two pigeons. And exploring what that means for ourself here and now. This is where it begins. This is where the understanding begins. So tonight... I want to look a little bit more at the non-attachment part. And I don't know about you, what your story is for coming to practice. (coughs) Excuse me. But certainly for me, that theme of non-attachment, in fact, more often translated as detachment, was initially very, very appealing. And I kind of tried in the world, tried to get it together to... You know, and even if the best conditions came together at, for you know ten seconds or however long, still that sense of it's not quite complete. There's something missing, and feeling the way I was entangled very much with the world of relationships. And so, seeing the Buddha's teaching, hearing the Buddha's teaching, ah, oh, okay, it's about not entangling. It's about disentangling, detachment. Ah, phew, big relief. Phew. Right, okay. Okay, so all that kind of messy intimacy stuff, I knew it wasn't a good idea. I'll just come back to this. This sounds much better. Cooling out. Phew, I could do with that. Or you may have come from the other side. Right? You may have experienced yourself as kind of detached in a way that didn't feel connected. That's the extreme of detachment where we're so kind of cooled out, in a way, we've become distant and lost our connection. 
and we miss it. We miss, we, we have the sense that something's missing. I don't know what. And then we're drawn to practice because it speaks to us more of deeply connecting. And it may be that you, you don't identify with either story. It can be a bit of both because the usual movement is we're either kind of getting our hands all over the world or our experience or things, or we're like, uh-oh, not going there. Get me out of here. They're the two kind of extreme movements that we do. Ring any bells? Right. It's really human. It's really human. And there's more also to being human, which I think we instinctively know. We instinctively are pulled towards, and that's usually where we end up places like this, to really explore that. So I want to uh, outline one of the teachings, which is called the Four Great Attachments. And great here is used, I think, not meaning they're the really good ones, right? But they're great, they're, they're big. We're very entangled, we can be very entangled here. And I want you to hear it in the light of the teaching, which is that this isn't a life sentence. Maybe that we have to work with it many, many, many times. But that what is being pointed to by the Buddha is to know what is free of that attachment. So the first one, and one I think that's very easily associated with Buddhist teaching, particularly Theravadan Buddhist teaching, which is a renunciate tradition, you know, exemplified by um, monks and nuns who are arms mendicants. They kind of renounce the world. So practice of letting go. So this first great attachment is our attachment to sense pleasure. Would you like some? (laughs) Yeah. And it's really important to hear. It's if I take my own experience of hearing that this was one of the great attachments, we can then easily start to flip and think, okay, no pleasure. Pleasure's bad. I mean, I'm slightly exaggerating here, but you know, I thought it was good. I thought that's where the answer was, but it obviously isn't. So it's bad, and we're kind of pushing it away. This is a just another extreme, actually. That there's nothing wrong with pleasure. In fact, the Buddha taught about pleasure. There is a lot of pleasure. There can be a lot of pleasure when we deepen in meditation. talks about the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. But we're asked to explore our attachment to sense pleasure. 
and find out what we're investing in this experience of, you know, like someone was talking about when the mind moves from three o'clock at three o'clock to half past five, and it's like tea, even though you know it's not it's it's good soup and you know good bread, but you know probably you've all had more exciting meals somewhere along the line. And yet we can invest in that. It's going to be some pleasure, something I can take in, something I can be nourished by, something I can have at 5.30. And if we're not paying attention, we may spend the next two and a half hours fantasizing, oh, maybe it's going to be, um, I love it when it's miso soup with tofu, and I hope it's that one. And we're kind of investing in stories of... Mm the best possible 5.30 outcome. And what we find is, actually, if we're doing that, we never get to enjoy the soup anyway when we get there. My partner told a story of um, when he was sitting a very long retreat uh, and... And the reason I say very long retreat is because if you're just here for your first day and you're not relating at all to what I'm saying, if you hang around with your own mind long enough, you you will. Right? That's what happens as we as we stay with ourselves for long long. We see all kinds of things go on in this mind, things we never thought we would see. Not always flattering either. And he said he was um, he knew or he could smell or I don't know what it was at some retreat centre that they were going to have lasagna that day, vegetarian lasagna, and that was his absolute favourite. And he was really looking forward to the lasagna and and got to the queue for lunch and there's lasagna, lasagna, all the excitement, a lot invested that lasagna will really do it for me. Got to got to take his lasagna portion of lasagna, take it back to his plate, to, to his. See, <clears throat> and he said he probably enjoyed the first second as the lasagna touched his tongue. And then he said he was so busy wondering if there'd be enough for seconds that he was kind of looking over at the, at the food thingy, you know, the food bar, just, is there going to be enough for seconds? And missed the rest of the lasagna. And then he said to make it even worse, double duka, he came to the end of his lasagna and he wasn't hungry anymore. <laughs> Right, and and where do you, where does it leave you? It's like oh no, again, again, unsatisfied. You know how do we how do we manage this with sense pleasure? Because we invest a lot in it. We really think it will do it for us, again and again. No matter how many times we learn or don't learn, no matter how many times we see it. And there's such a that it's it's not. We can be humorous with it and light, and that's really important. And we need to see it's actually got a very painful root. You know, I remember when occasionally my dad would give me a little square of Cadbury's chocolate. He seemed to have sometimes a bar beside his bed, a bar, one of those big bars, and I'd get a little one square. And um, lots of kids in the family. But anyway, I got one square, and I was great, great. And I used to take it downstairs and chop it with um, a knife into 16 small squares. So actually, then I got 16 squares. And it wasn't one square anymore. It was 16 pieces of pleasure I could have. Right? And so, and that sort of postponing that horrible moment when it's gone. 
postponing that horrible moment when I'm going to be left alone again in my bed with no chocolate. You know, and it's such a common human predicament. So, you know, I eke it out for as long as possible and put the last 16th over there and could still hold out hope that I would finally come to peace. I mean, you don't think of that when you're seven, but, you know, that's what it was. And it's for us in our practice here, the, 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 one of the ways to contemplate is to see that when we are attached to sense pleasure, attached to, you know, we're investing in it, we're giving it an authority that it simply doesn't have. It can't give it to us. It cannot. It is not in the nature of lasagna to really give us the peace and satisfaction that we seek. And, you know, when we hear it, we know, of course, you know, is this what the Buddha's teaching is about? No, it's not, but it's to really see where we're investing. We're kind of wrongly investing, actually. So where we can see this is um, when we are giving pleasure a kind of place in our experience and our practice that means that our world starts to become smaller. So as an example, a um, very striking story I remember of one woman on retreat at a place in India called Bodhgaya, which is the uh, place where the Buddha was enlightened, under the tree. And there's still a tree that's a descendant of the tree and you know it's a big pilgrimage place as you can imagine probably some of you have been there and in the, one of the temples there was a retreat that was uh, that is taught by teachers connected with the center here and one woman young woman came to the group interview to talk about you know everyone talks a little bit about what's going on and she said, I just had an insight. And she was very struck. She was kind of shaken. She said, I've been doing my walking meditation in a bit on the concrete path. So it's usually re- January, this retreat, which doesn't mean it's always sunny. In fact, sometimes it's quite cold in North India in January. But these days were sunny, short, short hours of sun. But it's winter sun, so it doesn't last so long. And she said, I was doing my walking meditation on the concrete path in my bare feet because it's, it was so nice, you know, when you have your, your kind of tired foot resting on that warm summer concrete and you can kind of relax into it. And she said, and I began each morning, she said, and I see now it was due to the angle of the sun that my walking path, my 10 metres was completely in the sun. So she said, I walked back and forth and back and forth. And then the next sitting, she said, I didn't really clock what was going on, but I walked eight metres back and forth and back and forth. And afternoon sitting, six metres back and forth. And she said, just before the group, her walking path had become about one and a half metres long. And suddenly she got it. What am I doing? I'm still walking in the part that's sunny. Right? The sun had moved in such a way that only a little bit of the concrete path was now in the sunshine. So only a little bit was available for that nice warm foot on the earth. 
And she said, that's what I do in my life. In avoidance, not wanting to be with what's unpleasant, my path, my pathways start to narrow, start to shrink, start to get confined. She said, so I thought, that's it. I don't want to live like that anymore. So she said, I, she said it felt like the most courageous thing she'd ever done. And it's, you know, when we hear it, it sounds like, well, it's just walking, you know. But she said, I stood there at the end of that meter and a half where the sun was, where the foot was in the sun, she said, and I saw that the next step was going to go onto cold concrete. Right? And there was such a resistance. No, I don't need to experience that. I don't want to experience that. Why should I experience that? I'll just stay in this really cozy little warm part. And she said there was so much resistance and fear. And then finally the foot landed on the concrete that was cold. And it wasn't actually that bad. She said, but that was very symbolic for her of what she does. And the fear and the resistance of taking that step beyond what is essentially the comfort zone, is huge. It's huge for us. So there's the fear and the resistance and that, that, that kind of noble spirit in practice, and this isn't a big deal in her story, can come up for us in many, many ways that feel more risky or threatening. And she said, oh, such a relief. Yeah, it was a bit cold, it was a bit unpleasant, but the sense of potential and freedom opened out, her heart relaxed that actually what was getting constricted and confined was not only her walking path but her whole being was shrinking down so the Buddha was not anti-pleasure can sometimes get that reputation these Buddhists very obsessed with suffering and not being attached to sense pleasure. The second great attachment we see on all levels in the world, right down to as we sit on our cushion, as we as my, as meditation really is a microcosm for the way the mind moves in the world. And it's the attachment to views and opinions. you got any views and opinions are fine of course we have views and opinions but are you attached to any are you attached to any views and one of the ways it's described this great word in english it's translated um but it's the thicket of views you know what a thicket is it's like where you get uh small trees or shrubs growing up and they're kind of crisscrossed with each other and it's really dense undergrowth and it's like a thicket views and we can't see clearly because we're living through our views and opinions when we're attached to them and we have so many have you had any views and opinions that you are attached to today and the way it might show up here would be you know I don't know why have they got two Buddhas up there in the place where I practice, we've only got one Buddha. And it's much better to have one Buddha, or actually it's much better to have no Buddhas. Why have they got any Buddhas up here? You know, It's not about icons. And, and we can find ourselves 
it's fine we have a preference, but we can find ourselves kind of sitting here and every time we open our eyes we get irritated and two Buddhas and why is the female one in front and why is she smaller? You know, and, and you know, and we can kind of find ourselves kind of going on and on and on and on. And it doesn't mean that there aren't useful views and opinions in this world, of course. You know, this is how things can really move in this world. We believe something, we stand behind something, we say no to something. But it's where it becomes a thicket that we can't see the wood for the trees, actually. And we invest a lot of energy in things we could really let go of. But we're attached to them. Why? Because they give us usually some sense of security. And in a world and mind that can sometimes feel a little fragile or chaotic, at least I know what's what. At least I know how they should arrange Gaia House. You know? <laughs> Anyone had any ideas of how to arrange Gaia House better? Since you've been here? You and about 10,000 other people. (laughs) Right? And of course we can be proactive and, you know, it's not about being passive. Non-attachment is not passivity. But it is a radical look to see where my sense of who I am is adhered, stuck, adhesive to some ideas I have about how things should be out there and how things should be in here and in the world. And we see where this takes us in the world, you know. We go to war over views and opinions. And if you think that's not you, where do those wars begin except in this mind? except in our unexamined mind. So here we have a chance to examine it, have a chance to see what's being wrongly invested. It's like we're placing all our bets or all our um, resources in the wrong place. A favorite spiritual story many of you have heard probably here many times, is the story of Mullah Nasruddin. There are many stories of Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi wise man who sometimes acts like a fool in order to wake us up. And the story is of Mullah sitting on the roadside with a big pile of chilies. And he takes a chili and he starts eating it and chewing it and his face goes red and he's sweating and he's coughing and he's... And he finishes it relief, takes another chili, starts eating it again. And his disciples say, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? And he says, I'm eating chilies. And they said, yeah, we can see that. Why are you eating chilies? As he takes another one. And he said, I keep hoping I'll find a sweet one. <laughs> right? We keep hoping that there is a particular thing in amongst all the experience out there and in here that will really, really be the one where I can finally say, I'm done, feet up, Nibbana. (laughs) But what the Buddha is pointing to, he's not saying there isn't freedom from suffering, there is an end to suffering, but we're looking in the wrong place. 
We're looking in amongst that thicket of views, in amongst the sense pleasures. So what do we do if we start to see we're in a thicket of views? If you're here today, kind of going on about someone, you know, going on in your mind, that's the difficult thing about being on retreat. After a while, we, it's, really, it's really hard to keep convincing ourselves that it's all about that thing out there. You know, because it takes a lot of courage just to stay with our mind. And when there's a lot of pain, it's out there. We, we, we put it out there. And we try to blame that and feel justified. But we see, actually, the suffering is here. I remember sitting on a, a retreat and um, one of the teachers, there was four or five teachers on that retreat, and I didn't like her. But I didn't really know I didn't like her, I just had lots of views and opinions about her and I would you know see my mind I didn't like the way she taught she didn't teach as well as my teachers they were better right so she'd start teaching and there'd be a kind of oh she shouldn't do it like this it should be different it's right kind of moaning but I really did believe it was about her until if you hang out with your mind long enough after 10 days every time she spoke and i was kind of in spasms i actually realized actually she i'm suffering here actually i want to understand this i'm the one who's suffering here and then there's a chance when we start to take responsibility it doesn't mean again i don't think i need to reiterate it doesn't mean we can't give our feedback or whatever it might be but where it's coming out of our own pain we're asked to look at that to see that because the suffering will stop here because if she goes someone else will show up and we won't like them either have you had that experience you know if i can just get rid of that thing and finally that thing goes soon to be replaced by another thing and it's exactly the same situation. That's the nature of samsara, the cycles that we kind of uh, caught in. So the, the shift is, okay, I'm taking responsibility for my experience here and now. And it may be that there's a lot of anger or a lot of hate. But we can learn to breathe with that. And it can learn, we can learn for that to be liberated. It's possible. The third great attachment is the attachment to rites and rituals. I think it's really interesting, this one. The Buddha in his time was responding specifically to, he was a kind of like a radical shift from the the conventional religion at the time, where there were, there was a kind of attachment to the rites and rituals, like if you do enough of these kind of purification practices, then 
you know, you'll get reborn in a better realm or whatever it, whatever it was. And he was t- this radical turn the, turn the gaze back to you. It's like no, it's not about it's not about what you do. It's not about the the um, gestures that you invest in. That will not do it for you. Freedom is about a really clear look inside. A real deep seeing into the way that suffering is created, moment by moment by moment. So, a story I really love that illustrates this very clearly. And we, you might think, sitting here thinking, well, I don't do any rites and rituals. Phew, at least I haven't got that one. Yeah. Right? Phew. Right? But if we're interested to look, just see. Just see. The story I love is the story of the guru and the cat. And it tells the story of a great teacher who, in his monastery, would teach practices where there was silence and sitting. And at the, this particular era, there was this cat that used to wander in the mon- into the monastery, into the meditation hall, and kind of distract everyone, you know, jump on their lap and encourage them to kind of get busy with the cat. So what they did was they tied the cat up next to the guru, just for the sitting periods, and then let the cat go. And so this was something that happened every day. The cat got tied up and the guru gave his teaching and people sat and investigated. And then the guru died. So there was a new guru and then the cat was still tied up and then the cat died. Years went by. And then the people in the monastery decided, actually what we need here is a cat that we can tie up beside the new guru because that's what we do here. Right? That's part of the ethos here. And we can get really, you know, so they got another cat and tied it up, and there it was beside the guru. Right? Everything's all in place now. Now we can look deeply. Right? And that way that we think things, if I get things in the right way, then, then I'll be at peace, then I'll be free, then I can rest. And it may be as small as. And we can get a little superstitious of, uh, you know, if, okay, I had a good sitting a minute ago, and my shawl was just had its fringes <laughs> on part of my knee and not the other knee. Right, that must be it. It must be just the right amount of warmth on that knee for me to... Re- right, okay, so let's get my shawl and a little bit of fringe there. Okay, ready. It doesn't work doesn't work and it's not to say that there isn't a place for rites and rituals of course there is if we learn the right relationship to them if there's something that speaks to us they can be places where we can uh, cultivate all kinds of qualities you know like in the if it's our cup of tea if we want to it can be a place ritual of bowing for example can be a place to um, develop a deep intimacy of laying our head to the earth, of not having to believe it's all about me. A ritual of folding our shawl carefully may be a sign of respect. But when rituals lose their connection, their root in our vitality, 
and our cultivation, then they're empty. They're empty. And even more painful than that, the rituals that we can develop in our life can be ones that are born out of fear. That they give us a little security. Or they they look like they're going to give us security. They don't really. Again, in a mind that can sometimes feel fragile. I remember um, some time ago living for a short time in a place where I was staying outside in a little hut. And I had to shut the back door of the big house where lots of people lived and lock it at night before I went to the hut. And so night after night, again, with lots of these things we're attached to, we don't get it immediately. It's only once there's some mindfulness and some interest and some stopping that we start to see what's going on. So a few nights had passed, and I realized I was doing this very weird thing, that I'd lock the door, and then I'd check it, fair enough, and then I'd kind of lock it again, and I'd check it again, and it was three, I did it three times. And after a while, I thought, what's going on? I really knew after the first check that it was locked. And then after a few more nights, I did it four times. And I thought, okay, what's going on? What's going on? And I realized, as I turned the attention away from the door, like the door's going to do it for me, if I really get the door locked, then I can safely go to my little room. But actually what was happening was there was a lot of fear. And that ritual of locking was born out of fear, of repeated locking. Locking's fine, but repeated locking, obsessive locking, was born out of fear. I was like, wow. As I saw myself just about to check for the fourth time, wow, I'm really afraid. A lot of sensation in the body of, got to get this right. Got to get this right. Fear, actually, of not locking it and then... I'd get into trouble for, in all the ways that our mind kind of gets tied up with all of that. And the promise in the ritual was that it would give me freedom from the fear, but it doesn't. When it's born out of fear, it keeps going. And it keeps going, and in practice we stop. So what's going on here? Wow, there's a lot of fear. Okay, can I stand with this? Can I breathe with this? Can I rest with this? Can I turn toward this? Can I, can I stop turning away? And that fear of insecurity, very normal kind of human existential fear, when we're not resting in our Buddha nature. So can we turn toward that? And let go of our attachment to rites and rituals. Again, all these things are great attachments. It doesn't mean we're going to do it in a second. Views. Which ones have I done? done Sense pleasures, views and opinions, rites and rituals.
The reason I'm pausing, I'm wondering whether to say a little more about the first three or just tell you the fourth. There won't be time for a full, a full uh, story of the fourth great attachment, which is a, a really um, difficult one to understand with our mind. Maybe we can get there tomorrow. The fourth great attachment is the attachment to the sense that we have of being a separate self over here. That is discrete and um, separate and kind of in its own, it has its own kind of ongoing inherent existence apart from all those other little selves over there. And as you can probably tell, that's a great attachment. It's something that when we aren't at rest in any moment, we cling to this. We cling to this notion that I am this discrete set of experiences. So put a dot, dot, dot beside that one. And just by way of um, coming to a close, I just want to offer the um, teaching of the Buddha of what it said that he awoke to on his night of awakening and how this fits in with our theme. And the Buddha woke up, understood deeply from the inside what is called the Four Noble Truths truth that if we really enter into contemplation in the moment with them, through our experience, not just an intellectual um, uh, sort of philosophizing about them, but through our direct experience, then they are ennobling. They ennoble us to wake up to our nobility, actually, as a human being. The nobility of what and who we truly are. So the first truth we I've already spoken about, but the first truth that there is unsatisfactoriness in this life. There is the experience of not quite being satisfied at home when we're when we haven't looked deeply yet. And even when we look deeply, we even experience the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness. We come really close to it. The second truth, there is a cause to this, and the cause to this is the clinging born of craving. That trying to take hold of an experience, a somebody, an idea, a pleasure, an inner state. I want something to cling to that I can rest in. The third truth, there's an end to this suffering. And the fourth truth, there is a way, there's a path to the end of suffering. And one way I really like that these are taught is if you imagine that beside each of these four truths, there's a little label, like on the bottles 
in the Alice in Wonderland story when she goes down down the chute and there's those little bottles that say drink me, you know, eat me. So there's a little label attached to each one of these truths. And the first one, the truth of suffering, understand me, is the label that goes with it. Understand me. It's not, if you're suffering on retreat, it's a mistake and you really shouldn't have come. It's, yes, understand me, stand with me, stand under me, come to know this, come to find out what it's like when I'm not turning away anymore. Second truth, there is a cause, and the cause is the clinging born of craving. Let go of me, that's the label. Let go of me. Now that's a huge topic, because probably all of you know about letting go, right? It belongs to every, you know, depth tradition, and uh, somewhere along the line it belongs to popular wisdom, it belongs... Right? But when we investigate, it's a very mysterious process. We can't just make it happen. Because if we could, I'd have told you it last night and you could have gone home this morning. <laughs> right? So we actually have to investigate how that, ha- how the- how that happens. <coughs> I know I'm suffering right now and I know I'm clinging, so I need to let go. Okay. And we find we're more tense. <laughs> How can we investigate that in such a way that we get, we, we get it? And it's what's so lovely in the teachings, as we explore more thoroughly, we, rec- we get it that things aren't as they appear to us. Our views and ideas about how things appear are kind of um, turned on their head. It's not as we think. The Buddha said, however you conceive of something, however you conceive of it, so whatever you think about it, the fact is otherwise. Meaning we have a partial view. Actually, this is really good news. Gives us a lot of room. The third truth of the part of the letting of the end of suffering there is an end and the label that goes with it loud and clear realize me realize this that this is possible for us we may get glimpses we may have faith we may not have faith it may be that we're here in hope right but something calls us we may have known that in moments or we're called towards that where entanglement is finished. Something in us intuitively recognizes that we want that. Yeah. End of entanglement. Freedom. And the fourth truth, there is a way to the end, and the label is, walk me. Walk the path. Do the work. Do the work, which is one of the hardest things we can actually do as human beings, in my <coughs> understanding. Really turning toward this experience and thoroughly investigating it. 
So let's sit together for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.